Welcome everybody to the first episode of Interop Talk, where we discuss new developments happening in the interoperability space. I'm Dave Castle, Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director of Care Equality. With me on the pod today is Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla and a practicing primary care physician. He's also a key member of many governing committees and boards in the interoperability world, including with HHS, the Sequoia Project, and with Care Equality. I finally remember him being my, my board chair and steering committee chair at different times when I was in the executive director seat at Care Equality. Also with us, Devin McGraw, former Chief Regulatory Officer at Citizen and now lead of data sharing at InBeach. She was also the former deputy director for health information privacy at HHS. I actually met her for the first time, I believe, when she was in, in that role many years ago. And last but certainly not least, Jennifer Blumenthal, CEO and founder of One Record, which was just recently acquired by Milliman in Telescript. So Jennifer, congratulations on that. All right, so let's go ahead and kick off the discussion and wanted to start the conversation today with the information blocking rule that went into effect on October 6th. Some people have taken to calling October 6th Data Liberation Day, but what's the reality? What does this actually mean for patients, vendors, and providers in, in your perspective? And ultimately, is it truly going to make a difference? What do you think? I'll go first. Devin, okay. I'm going to go high level. Devin's going to go deep. Way uh, in the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> So Devin and I actually were on the info blocking work group at Sequoia. So for the past year, I've gotten to listen to her talk about this. That's why I know I'm going to start out. So in my mind, the, there's the way I've always thought about information blocking and patient access right now is there were all these deadlines that slowly, slowly rolled out. So October 6th is this all EHI deadline, which is different than USCDI. It's an expanded data set and Devin's going to go into that. But I think what's important and what I heard from providers throughout this past year was it's more there's more data on a person that lives within the EHR and that's what all EHI is. And I think it's just like the next step to getting your records released. For me, what we've been focused on is the fire APIs over the past year. Not all fire APIs have been exposed yet. There are still many vendors who do not have an R4 fire API out. So what this all EHI date means is if I want to go get my records from the HIM departments, that's what's expanded this data set. For me personally, there's a huge business opportunity to be able to service consumers via an API. I think this is really going to be where ROI vendors or record retrieval companies, whatever you want to call them, will step up and deliver PDFs via an API that third-party apps like OneRecord can ingest. Devin, I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah, no, that was really good, Jennifer. I was happy to celebrate October 6th as a deadline that that actually occurred and didn't get extended in the way that a number of sort of organized healthcare organizations asked for. So in that regard, I was like, yay, great. We October 6th came, it's here, it's terrific. But to be honest, it's not a it's not that much of a marker where patient access to data is concerned in part because the HIPAA right of access has already provided patients with the right to have the entirety of their designated record set, both digital and non-digital. So the USCDI is really about what a certified system can produce. Now we've migrated, as Jennifer mentioned, to this kind of definition of all EHI being also subject to information blocking rules in addition to the HIPAA right of access, which means but you can't get all that data from traditional EHR pathways like fire APIs, which it, Jennifer's exactly right. It really elevates and brings to attention the role that sort of traditional health information management departments have always played in responding to requests for data because they're able to gather the data from the spaces that currently are not served by, again, the pipes that we're laying with respect to Fire API. So it's not just that not everybody's implemented, but even once everyone's implemented, there's just a whole bunch of data that sits outside of those that infrastructure. The patients, frankly, have always had the right to access, but it's always been a little bit kludgy. So there's also the hope that now that info blocking and the HIPAA right of access are one, basically the same, except HIPAA also applies to paper, that there'll be more awareness on the part of institutions regarding their obligations to get this data to patients in a timely way and in a way that patients can afford. 
the way I think about it right now in my brain so that when people ask me, I always have to make things really simple, right? Not the smartest person in the room, but I try and think creatively how to explain things. But I've learned a lot of this actually from Devin. So Devin, if I don't get it right, tell me. There And there's, a, there's an infographic put out by the ONC. So there's this idea of the designated legal record set, which what Devin is referring to, patients have already always had the right to access it. And then you have at the bottom USCDI, which is developed within the standards community to map to essentially map, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it's what we're using within the FHIR APIs. And there's this gap between what is available being structured data versus what's available via unstructured data. So what health systems have had to do is look at, okay, what's their definition of the designated legal record set? And then what can they make available in electronic format? And then what also, and at the very bottom, what do they make available via an API? And I think what you're going to see over the next couple of years is this progression of the standards community defining R4, R5, and then other versions of USCDI, USCDI version one, version two, version three, et cetera. And then it's all going to eventually get mapped to the designated legal record set by the time my grandkids are born. <laughs> now, let me chime in from the provider perspective, because I think this, the lead up to October 6th was a very big deal for a lot of providers. The first iteration of the information sharing requirements was, was a shock with the scope of USCDI version one. And there was a lot of angst about what we we're going to do when suddenly we had to make the whole designated record set available. But as you say, Devin, it, it already was a requirement. There was nothing new about that. I think this does change the timelines. It does raise the bar a bit in terms of timeliness of access and being consistent with what was the expectations that were set by the ONC in the first iteration of the information blocking rule. But there were a lot of really important questions because of course, patients are used to being able to access their data through a portal. They're increasingly, though slowly getting used to using APIs to access their data. But most organizations have a portal. They've made some decisions about what's in the portal. And as we approached the October 6th deadline, there were a lot of questions as to whether the portals should be reconfigured to make all possible data available. And some organizations did uh, make that change and some didn't because they really felt that maybe it was just gonna make the portal more cluttered and more difficult for people to find what was useful. And then there were also a lot of questions about whether people needed to revisit their definition of the designated record set in anticipation of this. A lot of those policies were put in place way back when in the days of paper. And some organizations, again, they revisited it with an eye towards electronic information and tweaked it a little bit. Others said, no, we're going to stick with our DRS definition from the past, from the paper and film days, and leave it at that. So I think what I've been hearing from provider organizations, including the one where I practice today, is is that we're going to wait and see. We're going to wait and see who gets accused of information blocking, what are the findings as those charges are reviewed, and then what kinds of disincentives come out from the different organizations that have a role to play here so that what are people really going to be held to? Because I think there's a big question mark here until we have enforcement, until we have penalties as to what really people need to do. And I think most organizations are aware that they're running some risks here and there, uh, but they don't know what it all means. And, if I, it, Dave, yeah, can, yeah, can I just ahead, add one, one more thing about this? Because of the patient at, because of the overlap between HIPAA's requirements and the information blocking rule, I have a, I've thought October 6th is actually most relevant for other types of interoperability and other types of requests that would be covered by information blocking beyond patient access ones, because for those requests, they were not, there was not a guarantee that you could get the entirety of the designated record set under HIPAA. That's a, it's a, they're all permitted disclosures. So what you would have gotten in the pre um, October 6th regime was, oh, you get the, you get USCDI. Now you can actually ask for, now I want the entirety of what a patient would get. And we'll just have to negotiate the way that I get it because probably can't get it through the, through the, through an API might need to work with the HIM department, but it's hugely important for the non-patient access requests because there, there were those limitations to USCDI, which didn't frankly, arguably exist in the patient context. Yeah, I think that's really important what you just said. Like USCDI is no longer the bare minimum now. It's all EHI is the bare minimum. So have fun. 
<laughs> yeah, I think the other point is issue that it applies not only to data that's being held by providers, but other information blocking actors, so the developers of health IT and the health information networks and exchanges. There again, suddenly they are, they weren't necessarily HIPAA covered actors before, and now they are covered by this new rule. So I think there, we are going to see progressively more people coming to the realization that they can ask for and expect to receive electronic health data from places where they couldn't before. One that has me very excited is laboratories. Historically, laboratories only send their data to the providers who ordered them, and some of them make them available to patients via fire APIs. But now, you know, they are providers uh, according to the rule, and anyone should be able to make a query uh, and get all of the data that they have, including historical data that was ordered by other providers, which can make a huge difference in terms of caring for patients. I'm really looking Yeah, although labs are also covered by the patient access rule. But it doesn't seem like they know that or that anybody else. Oh, yeah. No, I've definitely, and I work for a lab now, but I have definitely seen and heard about some stuff going on out there in the lab community where they appear to be oblivious to what is going on in the information blocking context. Or they're doing what you were mentioning, Stephen, that they're waiting for enforcement to start. Our next episode should be about this because I, in my brain, was thinking that labs that were not owned by provider organizations was excluded because they didn't fit the de- de- oh look at that <laughs> but didn't fit the definition of a certain a technology vendor imaging too podcast. imaging oh. centers same same deal they've got EHI we can also talk at length about whether DICOM images are part of the DRS I have heard different opinions no I, I will tell you definitively since I worked at the source of the HIPAA guidance, absolutely images I'm are with part you, of the designated Devin. record Some of set. my colleagues will, would um, disagree. They're wrong. <laughs> and I'll point you exactly to the guidance that clarifies this. It's actually crystal clear. So to the original question, how do we feel about the all EHI October 6th date? I feel much better after this past conversation. I did not realize the extent to labs and things of that sort. So it's the best. It's a big deal. Excellent. And so I hear that there's a lot to celebrate. I hear Stephen from the provider perspective, and certainly correct me if I'm summarizing incorrectly here, but you providers taking some steps to position themselves to be compliant, but at the same time, taking a little bit of a wait and see approach to, to understand how they might tweak that position to be in line with what the actual regulatory actions might be in the future. Absolutely. The other theme that I heard a little bit is, and correct me if I'm getting this not quite right in in the subtleties, but there's the requirement to provide information by all of these actors now, including some that that would not otherwise have been covered under the original HIPAA access. But there isn't necessarily an expectation that there's a quick and easy flip a switch electronic way to do it, that there is room for manual intervention. And Devin, you alluded to that. Actually, all three of you alluded to that. Jennifer, you mentioned ROI companies and record retrieval companies, and even a potential opportunity for your own company to to play a role. Maybe we expand on that a little bit. it wasn't the point of the rule to make things a little bit more automatically available and remove the manual step or or perhaps not. I guess I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I think it was, but the there are exceptions built into the rule, right? So infeasibility and the manner exception are two that I think a lot of entities will leverage when they say, yeah, we'll get this to you, but it's going to take some time or it's going to have to be in a format somewhat different than what you requested. And I think it's going to take time for us to sort that out. And again, I think there will be people who complain about information blocking and and there will be situations where hopefully OCR will say, it's not really unreasonable for you to say it has to be in this other manner or it's going to, or it's infeasible. I think that the standard of practice in information release will advance over time and that we will, will see them tightening that up. Yeah, I think there's definitely a sense that information blocking equaled automatic, some sort of automated or automatic release. And so I saw a lot of conversations on Twitter and in other places about how, oh my gosh, nobody's going to be ready for October 6th because we can't, the APIs won't be able to process all this EHI. And I was like, that's not the expectation of the information blocking rule. And in fact, the information blocking rule, it's very clear. If you 
actually go back to the text. Sometimes you just have to reread this stuff over and over again. It's a big rule. And you forget some of those details about how ONC made policy decisions that they believed were part of what Congress told them to do, which is, this is not just limited to what's in certified systems. Even the, the certified vendors themselves are on the hook for information blocking for data beyond just the modules that they get certified. Congress gave ONC fairly broad authority and directives around what they wanted to see and information blocking. And that's indeed what we got, something that is extraordinarily broad that that does accommodate basically the fact that not all of this is automatic. So I think ONC was aware the whole time that this was never expected to be all easily automated press with one but David, as you refer to as of October 6th. But I also think they've got lots of levers that they're pulling on to try to migrate the community and the stakeholders and the tech to the space where more and more of it is available through that kind of one button touch process. So, also, at some point, we should get to the difference between machine-readable data and human-readable data. This seems very, like, appropriate, Dave, that you're, like, the MC for this, because I started with you on this journey of building one record. So, for anyone who doesn't know, when we started building one record, we really wanted to be able to make it as easy as possible. We imagined it where it was essentially, like, a search engine. You put in your name and your information. It just goes out, gets your records. It was actually in our early prototype, which was very pink. There was a little button that said sync and do. And the way it was supposed to work, we had hoped was we would connect to national networks and frameworks like Kong Care Quality. And we would be able to just put in the basic information and go out and match a person to a patient or a patient to a person. I always forget which one it is. And we would get records returned. In the many iterations of one record, what I've learned is there's no one method to get data. So we thinking about it internally is okay, we have our fire method, right? Where user goes through an OAuth flow. In our Tefka network, we will, or in participating in Tefka, we will use demographics and we'll query that way under individual access services to get records from a HIM department. We'll connect to the data on Silox API. We'll always have to be, or to connect data, to get data from IISs, we're gonna have to figure out how to go to the state departments of health and get data. So right now there's no single on-ramp, get that, to go get data. <laughs> And I think that's just going to be the way it is for the next couple of years. So anyone designing solutions for consumers or even providers is going to have to just deal with that's the method of access right now and not complain and just be grateful for what they're going to get. <laughs> I know because Excellent. I've tried everything. <laughs> yeah, also, and I, and I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say also as the policies evolve, hopefully we will be moving progressively toward that single on-ramp that was in the initial vision for TEFCA. And we'll see some of those other on-ramps get closed down. We hope. Perhaps used less and less. That envision that there may always be some, I don't know what the right word for them would be, not outliers, not exactly edge cases, but elements of data that, that just don't lend themselves to some of the automated exchange modalities. And so Maybe you don't even need them for 95% of the use cases, but for those 5%, you do still need to use those other uh, other paths, other on-ramps, if you will. And speaking of a single on-ramp, the, the QHAN application period is now formally underway. How do you see that process shaking out in terms of types of organizations, number of organizations? What's the over-under for those in Vegas on, on the number of QHANs that will become designated? I don't know. Don't, isn't it public information that there's been nine letters of intent filed? And some organizations have been up front, including one on this call, <laughs> about their intent to apply, which is great. I didn't, I actually did not think that there would be so many, but the bar is pretty high for eligibility in terms of experience at facilitating, you know, net, network exchange at, a, at, an, at an enterprise level with a fair amount of volume. I just didn't imagine that there would be that many entities that would qualify, but apparently there are far more than I realized, far more than even if I talked to some of the, so the early ONC staff who were part of the early iterations of or 
visions of what they thought TEPCO would look like, they didn't think there would be this many. And I think it's an even more, it's potentially a more interesting question, like how many will there still be in five years? That is a a really interesting question. And to, to your point, you are correct about the nine letters of intent that have been submitted. There are many steps between the letter of intent and actual designation as a QHIN. I know on on my own part for Health Gorilla, I take absolutely none of those steps for granted. I definitely do not necessarily expect that the first batch of of designated QHINs will have nine members in it. I do think that there there will be some who are run into delays along the way, end up needing to defer a little bit or not able to meet the requirements as quickly as others. There may be some who end up not actually completing the process after they they really start to get into it and have some back and forth about their application with uh, with the RCE. To your point, it's also an interesting question as to how many there will be in five years. How many of these nodes do we truly need? Care quality certainly is different from the TEFCA, but I will say Marianne Yeager and I had some revenue projection conversations and we were talking about, okay, this we've got this care quality thing that we're doing. How many of these implementers do we think we're going to have? And we talked about having, okay, and we'll have three or four, and then maybe at some point it'll grow to, to eight or nine or 10. And I want to say there's something like 40 care quality implementers or even more today. And there will not be that many QHINs. I, my over-under for number of QHINs is well below 40. But to your point about the ONC staff being surprised, I think that we were similarly surprised at Cura Quality. So I'm less surprised by the number nine, in part due to that experience. I would be, I do think it's going to become much harder for new entrants to justify their entry if there are nine, 10, 11 QHINs already in production. And so with that, I'll stop dominating the conversation. But I'll let they, folks yeah, react they... to, to, to what I was saying there. Yeah, I think that the nine is a very interesting number. And uh, and then there are more that have expressed publicly their intent that have not actually submitted their letter of intent. I think if we're doing the over-under, we've heard from Mickey Tripathi that in January, the ONC is going to celebrate the first group of QHIN candidates that are going through the process. So I think that's an interesting number to speculate about. How many will be on the podium, if you will, or at the party when he makes that announcement? Because I agree, I don't think, I think it's unlikely that all of the nine who formally put their hat in the ring will will necessarily still be actively in the process come January or certainly the middle of the year, because as you say, the expectations are very high. And, and there are probably a lot of folks who aspire to be QHIN, talk to a lot of organizations and say, oh yeah, sure, we could do that. And I was like, did you read all of that documentation? It's This is non-trivial. I think, so someone who has tried for a long time to connect to national and state HIEs, I know Devin has gone through this as well, I think the market will level the amount of QHINs. So I think the thing that QHINs are going to struggle with is great. They've gone through the application process. They're putting all these resources to it. Will people join their QHIN? There is going to be a lot of shopping. I think there are certain QHINs which announce will have a core group of customers that they want to serve already. But I think you're also going to see ones, a, a big group of people who've never played in the interop world or have yet to join an e-health exchange, a care quality or a Commonwealth or HIE, going around and shopping from each one. So there's gonna be a question of services, it's gonna be a question of ease of use, it's gonna be a question of pricing. And then there's gonna be a lot of variables that I don't think I've thought about yet. But I think what's gonna happen is you're gonna have a lot of early entrants and five years from now, six will say, oh yeah, they fizzled out, they couldn't do it, they didn't have a strong enough RLS or whatever it is. So I think that even these early entrants will the playing field will be lower. So are you projecting that in, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you would say that there are going to be less than or fewer than nine QHINs in, in, in four or five years? No, there might be the same amount. We might have this first round people drop out, the second round people who are like, oh, we're not going to be the first movers. We're going to learn from their mistakes and come in. We don't care about influencing governance at all. We'll come in at a later point. I think that hopefully we don't have 50 QHINs. That's just a little I will admit if I put my QHIN technical hat on, 50 QHINs would present a bit of a technical challenge in terms of an awful lot of endpoints to be hitting all the time. Not that it couldn't be done, but I think that would definitely go beyond surprising some of the original ONC architects into making them a little worried that it was pretty far from what they had originally envisioned. 
I think naively, no. oh, sorry. I thought that when Cures Act was first announced and Tefka was part of that, I naively think I thought that it would be like a provider network, a payer network, like a pharmacy network that you would just see like hubs of the same type of entity. And I don't think it's gonna be like that. So I'm interested to see what the participant demographics are for each of the QHIMs that they choose. I think it's a little too early to place the bet on where people go and why. Yeah, I was going to comment on just that, Jen. I think you're absolutely right, especially since TEFCA participation is voluntary at the outset, and we really only have two use cases to start with, that uh, it's not clear how many folks, even of those who participate with the organizations that become QNs, are going to start doing TEFCA-based exchange. What is going to drive them toward that? But then I think it will be over time as CMS, CDC, and others start to or continue to incentivize TEFCA exchange that we'll start to see more folks coming on board. And at that point, there will be some more mature QHINs that, that are already up and running who will be ready to receive them. But I don't think they're going to be jumping on board right away because there's really no incentive to participate in TEFCA exchange. I, th I think there's also a possibility that we may need to actually add additional QHINs in order to make sure that the required purposes of use are well served by the existing QHIN infrastructure. And individual access services is what comes to mind in this scenario because IAS is a required response, but nobody's actually required to provide the service. So if no one steps up to actually provide the service, and that, that doesn't necessarily have to happen at the QHIN level, but if there's no QHIN that is actually onboarded and IAS providers in a way to funnel those queries into the network, then we have a gap. Does that get resolved if nobody is stepping up to the plate? I think for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't fully know the acronyms, what Devin's saying is for Thank you, Jen. a record or citizen to query the network, essentially, we would have to choose a QHIN that offers individual access services or offers at least a way for us to onboard and do that. So what would happen is we would pick QHIN 1 and QHIN 1 says, yes, we'll support individual access services. And then we would send a query through QHIN 1 to QHIN 2. QHIN 2, even though they might not allow their participants or sub participants to be a patient access use case, they still will have to respond because individual access is individual access is a must response. However, there's still questions around that and there's still people who might figure out escape with a loophole, but that's really what it is. There's a question around is Tefka just going to be a national treatment network or is it going to allow patients to request, payers to request, public health to request, and that's still TBD. It's a really interesting point. I think it could go down a particular commercial path now that I will avoid for purposes of this podcast, but I will say that, uh, Devin, I think you're right to identify a possible gap there, but I am pretty confident in the market filling that gap. Speaking of markets, my prediction, you're hearing it now, is you'll see a group of QHINs and over time, if Tefka is successful, you'll see a consolidation just like cellular networks, right? Each state, somebody applied for the early license, they had those individual licenses. And then over time you saw an aggregation of larger companies, AT&T, Verizon, whatever. So long-term, I think there'll be less QHINs if successful. I agree. And the system will work more efficiently if there are. Yeah. That's important. We should maybe call that out that we shouldn't have nine QNs to start with. I understand why you say that. I think technically we could handle nine. I mean, we could handle more than nine. And when I say we, I don't just mean mean Health Gorilla. The QHIN, the prospective QHIN community, I think has the collective technical expertise to, to handle that. I do think that over time there will be an, and probably should be some consolidation, that it will start to emerge what each QHIN's, you know, beyond its target market, what its actual market turns out to be, which which is likely going to be a subset of its target markets. And some may may end up not establishing an actual market, which will have its own consequences. But, it, but as that ecosystem starts to, to organize itself, I think it will be logical to see some consolidation. I do hope that there are always more than 
four or five, maybe five would be okay. I think once you start getting below that number, four even might be okay, but then at some point it starts to, to become a little worrisome for a, a lack of choice. But that's a problem that we will solve if and when we ever get there. The other thing about having more participants is I think it, it creates an environment where you have more innovation. And as we move towards newer use cases and newer stakeholder groups accessing and utilizing the TEFCA, it'll be good to have a community that, that can innovate, that can expand. I think a, a lot of the potential early QHINs are folks who are really well-established in their market, have a very solid customer base and really have no intention of going beyond serving their existing customers. And I think if we see, if we want to see these thousand flowers bloom, you're going to need to have at least some folks in this community that are able to innovate and expand their market. Yeah. You talked about innovation there, Stephen, and I don't know how reasonable it is to consider fire to be innovative exactly at this point. It's fairly well established, but from a Tufka standpoint, FHIR is going to be an innovation. It is starting out using, as the technical mechanism, some older types of standards that are not using FHIR. But Koya Project recently asked for some feedback on plans for FHIR in the Tufka ecosystem. What does the group think about the role that FHIR is going to play? Will it ultimately supplant the existing CDA, IE-based infrastructure? And I, it Jennifer, you can translate my acronyms if you'd like, or is it, is it going to be developing in parallel or is it going to end up not being a major focus of Tesco? I think before we try to answer that, Dave, I want to challenge your statement that FHIRE is perhaps not so innovative. We are the cognoscenti of interoperability here, and perhaps the people who are listening are as well. But in the real world, the volume of data that's moving over V2 and CCDA is so much greater than the volume that's moving over fire. I don't think fire has made nearly the inroads that it can, whether we're talking about patient access or provider use or certainly public health. I keep hearing the public health community saying, we're just not ready for that. It sounds great, but payers now have to participate in fire. Providers now have to participate, but, but who's asking for it? And how is that volume changing? I've been impressed by how slowly that's grown over time. So I think fire be, being a part of Tefka in within the coming year is fabulous. I think as we see incentivization for the use of Tefka, I think it really is going to push people towards using more fire, which should improve interoperability across the board. I think, I think go ahead, Jen. For me, in my mind, I still sometimes get confused with a lot of what's possible, what's not possible. But in my everyday life right now, fire has been the most successful for our use case where we're held back currently is not on the actual type of api it is it's more on the identity piece right so the o the oauth workflow has limitations for a user remembering their credentials having to off many times to get all their data so if fire can step up to where we're using demographics and it's a fire api call and it's returning all the data i'm ready for that i think the nice thing about fire and you remember like Health IT, I'm not an engineer. This is something that I've learned from building one record is that there's a it's an easier path to entry for new engineers and new people entering the space. It's just something easier to work with. So I think that fire will grow. We still have an identity issue, and that's the job to be done is to solve that. Or maybe it's a matching issue. It's a it's oh, it, there are many issues. Yeah. We could spend the entirety of one of these calls talking about the challenges around individual access, but ONC clearly wants the TEFCA community to migrate to FHIR. And what I think is challenging is that nobody's getting paid to upgrade their systems where they need to in, in, in order to move from an IHE model of exchange, which is they've used for years, it has sustained them, it's workable in that community, to something that requires a some degree of technical lift, depending on who you ask. People say it's easy, people say it's hard. Either way, there's no resources for it. And, and frankly, I'm not sure there are sufficient incentives in place yet, Stephen, to for people to say, oh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna spend a crap ton of money to re redo my systems so that I can be part of TEFCA and exchange and fire. Because right now there's no 
You don't get any credit under information blocking for participation in the TEFCA necessarily. The monetary incentives that come out of CMS are provider focused. They are not HIE focused necessarily, although those are providers are traditionally HIE customers. But it's not, they're not big incentives. And if the incentives are on the provider side and there's still no money flowing to HIE to do all the necessary tech upgrade to make it happen. But I think on top of that, you have to realize that to some degree, the TEFCA is very disruptive, could be, depending on the HIE, very disruptive to a business model where you have an HIE that is making money only on exchange and hasn't jumped the not the shark necessarily, but jumped up to providing a higher level of functionality and data cleanup and data aggregation and other sorts of services to provide to their customers. If they're just facilitating exchange, this all looks very threatening. I I didn't think about that, but Devin's right. I think from a engineer developer perspective, fire is going to keep growing. It's just easier to work with identity. I already called that out, but I didn't really think about that. It's going to impact people's current revenue models. And it's disruptive in that way that the old guard is going to be protective and trying to essentially expand the timeline for full adoption. They won't be successful because new technology will always eclipse old technology. That's it. Yeah. Excellent. How long would that take? How long will it take before you can, you can, you're basically not functional as, as an interoperability engine without fire? I don't think it'll take more than a few years. We shall see. I think for if the question is specifically about an interoperability engine, I would be inclined to agree with a few years. I think that it's going to be challenging for that to be your only means of provide, or well, for that not to be in your arsenal in terms of what you provide to your customers, because your customers from the standpoint of an interoperability provider are going to be looking for fire as one of the key exchange modalities that they'll need you to support. And I think the biggest thing is I'm seeing so many people just, they don't even want to learn about CCDAs. They don't want to learn about other formats. They're like, put it in fire, convert it to fire, 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 or convert you like that. So that's what I think is going to drive it is people are like, I don't want to learn the old stuff. It's too complicated. It's too old. It takes too long. It's too expensive. Do it this way. So there'll be a lot of types of exchange that you can only do in fire. And I think that's really the key thing. A lot of the digital health, the patient access to data from payers, I think that will drive it because people who do not embrace fire and support it simply won't be able to access and use some of the data that, that they want. I do have to pause you right there. I think my biggest critique is that patient access shouldn't be limited to fire, which kind of where we started this conversation. And I know you've heard me vocalize it and Devin vocalize it. My biggest disappointment with Tefka right now is the fact that we can enable patient access today through traditional soap-based exchange. And it doesn't look like it's going to end up that way. And I think that was a decision that um, stakeholders made. And I hope that it isn't really what it looks like to be. I think we should be able to query in SOAP-based document exchange for CCDAs. I don't think it should just live in fire. But I think Devin probably has more words on that. Yeah. I'm like, how many times can I put that little clapping emoji up there? That's essentially what we are trying to build with this gateway that Invitae is building to facilitate the ability of health information exchanges and other data providers that are not yet migrated to fire, that don't want to build portals, but still want to make their pipes accessible to patients, either because they think they have to under the information blocking rule. And I think there's a good argument that they do, or they want to, or some combination of the two. And so there has to be a vehicle for getting out of portal dependency. And so far, we don't have a migratory path for that. And maybe the gateway that you know, that we expect to be live and in production before the end of the year will prove that all the scary parade of horribles that people think is going to happen um, unless we lock this down and tie it, in, it forever to portals. It, frankly, there are ways to manage it outside of that process. This is where my brain breaks is right here. This is the part that I can't comprehend is, so for anyone who's listening, what this means is right now consumers are still going to have to go through a workflow where they're going to have to know everywhere they've received care and authenticate over and over again just to create their aggregate longitudinal one record. Just kidding. There are people, there's Jason Boyd at Meditech is always trying to explain this to me, but my brain can't suck it in and understand. He's like, no, well, you'll be able to use Fire and an RLS to go get the data and go across systems. And my, I just, 
I, there's still the, uh, the authentication issue. So my brain hasn't figured it out yet. So somebody well, will. I, no, I haven't figured it out yet either because somebody with one of those, somebody who offers a, in order for that to work, Jennifer, somebody who offers a portal is going to have to step up and say, not only will I give you the data in my system, but I'll go back and launch a query through the TEPCA and get all your other data and then push it to you through your portal. Who's going to stand up and do that? Because that you're buying the liability of making sure that those records are all accurate before you push it down the pipe. Well, who's going to be incentivized to do that? What'd you say? Who's going to be incentivized to do that? As a provider, I would love to do that. I would love to go query and get all the patient's data together. But then, as you say, there's a burden on you to integrate that, deduplicate it, store it, secure it. There, there's a lot to that. I've seen some good implementations of Fire that I've really like positive about outside of Tefka. So like some of my favorite ones are dynamic registration, just like you're registered, great apps off and running. Okay. That's just the application process. There are a couple APIs that large health systems have implemented that sit on top of their internal HIE and allows us to access data, one offflow, but access from any of those facilities. Athena's Fire API is very attractive because what it does is it the user authenticates one and then it presents the user with a list of facilities anywhere they've been associated with. However, Athena, I hope you're listening, is that even if I pick a location, I still have to go back and off with all those locations. So it tells me the list, but it doesn't allow me to off with one and get data from all. So I think that a, a way to appease me is to allow me to off with one location and then send me all the data within the, like the EHR system across clients. That's really what I'm looking for one off to the EHR system across clients. And it varies from implementation. So I'm, as someone who's implemented FHIR for patient access in production, I'm interested to see what FHIR looks like within Tefka based off my knowledge, both of SOAP-based optimum exchange and FHIR APIs. And I think there, there's a lot of conversation there about the FHIR authentication methods and making the patient remember all their portal credentials, which I agree is, has been a fundamental barrier in the individual access requests. And yeah, it's given me perhaps not as bad headache as it gives Jennifer, but still a pretty bad headache. I, I do think that we're making progress on the demographics query approach for patient access. However, one of the things that, that I always found at Cure Quality was that people would sit in the relatively academic work groups and come up with solutions, and they would even vote for those solutions. But then when it came time to adopt them, there, there were crickets. And well, one of the things that, that I think is possible, policymakers perhaps will react to this if in fact it develops, but I could see the fact that TEFCA is about to require, six months is a short time, the, that the IAS purpose be honored from a responder standpoint. As I noted earlier, I think the market's going to take care of the requester side, but will that very fact be a limiting factor on the adoption of, of TEFCA by provider organizations within the absence, perhaps, of some HIPAA moderation on the breach yeah. rules? I yeah. have a suggestion for the ONC, if you're listening. ONC should maybe hire ad hoc who they use for government stuff and they should build a consumer app and I want them to build a consumer app just a test app and go through all the steps that a consumer app developer has to go through and a consumer has to go through because I really all the times that I listen to the government talk they just don't have that real life experience. Hey, ONC, hey, CMS, I think you should build an ONC app and a CMS app and try and connect and go through it and then you will know the burden that is on consumers today. Yeah. I, Dave, I think you're spot on about the sort of overarching concerns of those who are building the TEFCA, that if individual access response is required and they don't feel comfortable with the terms and conditions, that they, there's this fear that the, net, the network will collapse for all other uses because people will not want to be forced to respond if they're if they don't feel that they've got the legal liability issues appropriately addressed. So there are some genuine challenges there. And in terms of very interested in your proposition that the market will fix who will provide individual access services since there's a lot of limitation on the fees that can be charged in the individual access context. 
that are embedded in the information blocking rules. So whereas other types of exchange, sort of stakeholders who facilitate that exchange can be paid for it by the users. In the case of information, at least where fees are concerned, I think it's a little bit of a uncertainty around licensing of interoperability elements and whether royalties can be charged, but it's you can't charge a fee to a patient or an app to connect to a Fire API. How is Tefka going to justify allowing QHINs or participants to, to charge individual access service providers when the information blocking rule won't allow that to happen? So where's the market? We're building the gateway because nobody was providing the solution for the apps that Jen was talking about, and we needed it. So we decided yeah, to build it. I think that there, there are business models out there there are business models that I see actually with some regularity from Health Gorilla's customers, where there are some creative approaches that a digital health company can take. Uh, and some of them align reasonably well with a treatment use case, or they can, if they learn about the treatment requirements early enough, they can design in that direction and associate themselves with providers. There are others that their lives are made greatly easier in pursuing an existing business case that is economically sound and does not need the patient to be charged for it to be economically sound, where they will provide, that they will be seeking to, to allow the patient to, to use their right of access through their app. And I think that as long as there are organizations who have a business case for doing so, there will be organizations who are happy to provide them with the, an entree into the QHAN ecosystem uh, and I do think we can maybe talk offline about this, but I do think that the QHAN ecosystem is sufficiently complex that it's reasonable to charge participants, even if they are primarily serving an IAS market. Is it? But does that break the whole network if basically everybody is leveraging the patient access pathway because that is a required pathway? Because you can get patients to consent to share their data with just about anybody. What makes something an IAS use case is, I think, a legitimate question. <laughs> maybe we could make that. I'm actually, I'm sounding facetious, but maybe we can make that a topic for another yeah. conversation. I, I think very briefly is if, it, if you legitimately have the patient wishing to request their records and wishing for you to play a role in that and willing to give you the ability to do something with their data afterwards then good for you that there, there is not and should not be any limit on that. There are lots of things that I, as a patient, might like to be able to do, and I would happily give someone the right to, to request my data or some portion of it, especially if we're talking about a fire ecosystem, if that would enable me to do something in, a, in, in an automated way. I've often talked about the patients, the original idea of PHRs, of getting your record and looking at it. Yes, actually, there, there is a market for that. There are lots of people who wants to aggregate their records, have a single view of it and understand it. However, even though there are lots of those people, there's still a minority of the overall population. And I compare it to the banking world where, sure, sometimes I just want to know what my balance is, but usually I want to cash a check or deposit a check with my, my, my phone or transfer things or make an electronic payment. I want to perform a workflow step. And yeah. so I think that's where people who are allowing patients to perform a workflow step can construct other business cases around it. And I think that's okay. I think I understand what you're saying, but I think that there's two ways that I think about it. Basically, I'm going to just recap that is an organization has a business use case that is using individual access services, but has a longer term business model offering strategy that involves beyond just the aggregation of data. But I think the thing that I was really disappointed with during COVID was we tried to connect to a lot of people where we had such a huge amount of users coming to the website, specifically looking for their vaccination data, specifically looking for lab results. And yes, this was, we knew this was a, just a moment in time, but there was no way for us to really at scale connect to all the IASs. And it was just a moment in time, but imagine this moment in time happens again. We're gonna have the same problem again. And there should be the ability for just a pure use case for somebody in their garage who wants to build an app to biohack themselves to do it without fees. And right now that avenue doesn't exist where you're gonna see our organizations, large and small, aligning with the business use case that allows them to use IAS, which obviously we as ourselves will also do this, but there's no 
pure way for people to leverage the law for their own purposes right now because it's going to be tied to some sort of monetary value, which I think that's the way to think about it. Anybody should be able to build their own app and not have to pay to access their data. I actually agree with you, first of all, and I don't know that's incompatible with the marketplace of larger players, if you will, enabling the patient access via Tufka. I hope that isn't incompatible anyway, that there would still be, and Jennifer, you may be frozen, but I hope that there, there is a way for that still to occur. There are some costs associated with, with participating in Tefka and for providing the access into the Tefka ecosystem. So there, there may always be some relatively low cost that, that anyone would have to face. But hopefully that would not be a fundamental barrier in, in that process that you were describing, Jennifer, developing, uh, developing an app. Dave, as you said, it would be nice to dig deep, deeply into this question of what constitutes individual access. And when we do that, let's also dig deeply into what constitutes treatment, since those are the first two use cases under the test. It'll be very good to deeply understand what the boundaries of those are. Every time I think I deeply understand, someone presents me with a new use case. And that, and hence the challenge of a network where there's limited purposes for required response, right? Everyone needs to fit into one of those two buckets. So lots of creative thinking going on around yeah. how you could get there. And we've certainly seen that in the care quality ecosystem. Yeah. The, and my hope is that Tefka will start to to solve that problem, that through government incentives and requirements, eventually that we will see more use cases that folks will be compelled to respond to. And we'll start to un unjam the logs that are keeping us where we are today. I think that'd be a great podcast, like just dedicated to what is treatment, because that confuses me to this day all the time with all the new use cases coming out. You guys should definitely consider that as a podcast topic, which Stephen, you're going to have a better sense of that. But I think that's what people are always, that's what I see happen in the patient access world is organizations being like, oh, patient access doesn't work. I'm just going to use treatment. And they're really abusing that area. And then it makes it harder for patient access to thrive. It should just be like, okay, we're going to support patient access. So there's no gray area on treatment. And I think the definition of treatment is confusing. So those are the two things that I've always struggled with is it's a moving target and that really deserves a discussion. Yeah, and once and, we solve that, we can work on payment and healthcare operations and we'll yeah, be done. We're going to solve the world <laughs> here in this podcast. All right. Hey, I want to be, I thank you everyone for your time. I wanted to be respectful of that. This was a great discussion. Ryan and I discussed ahead of time. Okay. What if everybody's just staring at each other at the 40 minute mark? And I said, okay, good that we have a contingency plan for that, but I doubt that's going to happen. And I was proven correct. So we, we will definitely need to bring the band back together for more episodes here, but for now, let's go ahead and wrap up. And look forward to further conversation. And thanks again so much, Devin, Stephen, and Jennifer. Thank, Thank you, guys. Great to see you. Thank you. At least for a while, Jennifer. <laughs>